Beautiful day. Good morning. And to those at home, good morning. A special good morning to you as well. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation. Uh, If you notice, if you picked up a sheet for the words to the songs, you will see a small outline. um, Maybe help you follow. If you can use it, that's great. If not, you could make it into an airplane and fly it later. At home, you will find outline uh, as usual on your screen. So we are now in the third letter um, to seven churches uh, written by the Apostle John, who is, as we know, on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there for proclaiming and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's very interesting to note, we have not made this comment yet, but I think it's it's interesting to know that John, who, who has been bold, who has been proclaiming the gospel, who has been faithfully enduring persecution, God has taken him, all that he has learned, all that he has gone through, and said, John, I want you to write this letter to the seven churches who are being persecuted for their faith. God does that sometimes, does he not? He takes what we have gone through and, and, and then use it to strengthen others, brothers and sisters in the faith. So John is writing this letter. To a people who need to endure, who need to be faithful, to need to continue to press on. We know it's on the Lord's Day. John gets this revelation, this unveiling, this apocalyptic vision. While in the Spirit, to write to seven churches, chapter 1, verse 10, says these churches, he names them, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This revelation we know was given, what was God's revelation, given to his son Jesus, then in turn gave it to John. Christ's letter. It is he that is the hero, not only of Revelation, but of all of the Bible. But here in Revelation, as you read the book of Revelation, you will notice that Jesus is the only one, the only one worthy to open the scrolls that contain the final culmination of all things. Jesus alone is the risen Lamb and Lord of the universe. The book of Revelation is from and for and about the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the warrior Lamb King who is coming again to reign and to rule. And as the ruling ruler and, and one who will reign over the earth and head of his church, when he's got something to say to the churches, we should listen. It would be wise to listen up. We know in chapter 1 that Jesus is walking among the churches. He lives in, among the churches. He holds them in his sovereign right hand, his protective, caring, sovereign right hand. The first letter we know in chapter 2 was to the Ephesians. The church of Ephesus, they were, they were doctrinally sound, busy doing the work of the Lord, per- persevering in the faith, but they lost their first love. And God tells them to remember the gospel. His name is Jesus. Remember the gospel, repent, turn from your sin, and then do and, and, and repeat the things that you had done when you first came to faith. The second letter was to Smyrna. We saw that last week. There was, there was no disapproval of them at all within the letter. Smyrna was a persecuted church, but they were a faithful church. They were being persecuted by the Jewish people and by the Romans. And yet, even though they suffered poverty, Jesus tells them that they were rich. It's interesting. He says, you are rich. Even in your poverty, you are rich because of the gospel. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 10, in, in all your richness, some of you are getting thrown into prison. Satan, the devil, is going to throw you. He's going to test you. For 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful, Jesus says to the church of Smyrna. And I'll give you the crown of life. 
They were persecuted unto death. I mentioned last week that Polycarp, the pastor, the, the bishop of, of, of Smyrna was burned alive at the stake in 155 AD. And now our text this morning is the third letter. The third letter is written to the church of Pergamum. Turn with me to Revelation. Let me read to you the word of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Hear God's word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and, and you did not deny my faith, even in days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching, teaching, teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. As you have in your outline, you'll go through five stages or five um, points, headings. I'll hit them quickly, um, but they're, they're, you have them there in your notes. The first is Christ revealed. He revealed himself in verse 12. Next is the, the commendation. Recognize there's something good that's going on in the church. Then Christ gives his rebuke to the church and things that aren't going well. And then he gives them the command to repent. And then finally the church's reward. So look with me in verse 12. We see this Christ, the Lord Jesus being revealed to this church. To the angel, spiritual being possibly, maybe leader of the church. In Pergamum, that's the location the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Over and over we've been saying, I want to say every time we go and look at one of the churches here, remember that this church is a real church with real people, with real problems, difficulties, strengths, and weaknesses. They were written, this letter was written to a particular church in a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular culture. What a city this is. The city was the official capital of the Roman Asian minor Although the city, other cities claimed that destination or that place, but this city was the actual official capital. It had 200,000 volumes in a library next to Alexandria, which was the great, the great city of, of knowledge in that day. In fact, Alexandria had shut the flow of, of papyrus, papyrus that, you, that you write on so that they couldn't get more volumes. But uh, the, this, this church of Pergamum developed parchment, a skin, uh, animal skins. It actually, parchment's taken from the name of Pergamum because they felt that strongly about continuing on in their education. It was the place of the great Zeus, the god Zeus, Soter, Savior, seven wonders of the world. There was temples dedicated in this city, Dionysus, Athena, um, Alclepias, the god of healing, symbolized the sign of medicine, serpent entwined around a staff. He was also called Soter, Savior. There was a hospital there. They were big into medicine and, and for healing. 
And because the Greek word was attached to both these gods, Zeus and the God of healing, it became a real problem for believers, for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who know who the true and only Savior of the world was. And it brought to them much persecution. The temple of Zeus, as you entered into the city, was up on top of a mountain. It was spectacular. Visitors would come from all angles and see this 100-foot, 40-foot temple. 100 by 40-feet temple with sculptors all around it. It appeared to be this, this huge throne in this city to this Greek god. It was a city steeped in pagan religion. Official center of worship of the emperor. In fact, it was the only church was given permission and dedicated a, a, a statue to the worship of a living emperor, Caesar Augustus. Let me, let me wrap it up by telling you, giving you a quote from Dr. Al Mohler, a scholar, New Testament scholar. He says this about the city. One can find an altar to the worship of power, sexuality, intellect, and health in the city. If you were to take a profile of American paganism, it would be very difficult to come up with a more concise and accurate summary than to imagine the four main idolatrous impulses of the city of Pergamum. Pergamum. Power, sexuality, intellect, and health. So Jesus reveals himself to this church, uses, as he does in, in the, all the other letters, a portion of his description from chapter 1. Now, what's interesting to note about Pergamum, and some of all this culture is going to come into play in a moment. But first, what's interesting to note is that is the, the governing authorities, the proconsul of Pergamum, had been granted by Rome a very rare power known as the right of the sword meaning they could perform executions at will. And it was to this church, Christ says, yes, I am the, the one, the words of him who has this sharp two-edged sword. And what's interesting, he doesn't even, it's, it's not even exactly the same as verse, in chapter 1, uh, where he, he, uh, he describes himself there. In here, in this text, in our chapter 12, in, in, excuse me, in chapter uh, 2, verse 12, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there is definite articles between each of these words. In other words, literally, literally it says the one who has the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. See what Jesus is saying? It wasn't the Roman proconsul. It wasn't uh, Pergamum. It wasn't, a, it wasn't up to them for the real matters of life and death. It was Jesus who had the two-edged, the double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. One can't read this and not remember a couple of months ago when we were in Hebrews chapter 4. The writer says, For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Judgment. And then Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There is judgment, there, there is conquering, there is battling and protection by the Word of God. It's the sword, 
the word, the scriptures, the Bible. But Christ speaks his rule and his reign and his judgment. It conveys authority, decisive discernment, invested in Christ with the power and protection of life and death. Christ alone, not Rome. Christ alone, not Pergamum, who has the authority and judgment, the word of God. That is the ultimate instrument of life. It is the ultimate instrument of death, Christ and the word of God. Are you in the word? Are, are you learning and loving Jesus by being in the word, reading your Bibles? I, I, I would like to believe that as we have more time on our hands, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Some of you thinking, I wish I, I did. But being in the word, studying the word, reading the word, It is according, according to Revelation 19, Jesus will indeed fight with the sword against his enemies. Revelation 19, 13, listen to this. He, Jesus, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What does that mean for us today? Wh whose judgment do we fear or stand in awe of and respect and submit to? Is it the authority and judgment of Christ? Believers who are threatened with this world and the judgments that this world can, can, can throw at us, they, they wield their power, but their power is limited. Only Christ has the final authority. In a day when power and authority has gotten out of hand, there are people, all kinds of people, scrambling to gain power over one another. But here to stand against Jesus' authority places them under the ultimate authority, which is Jesus Christ. So who do we stand in awe of? The world or Christ? Who has the two-edged sword in the mouth, his mouth coming out with authority and judgment. The Christ revealed. Look at the commendation. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says, I know where you live. I, I know where you dwell. It is not outside my sovereign lordship. He says the same thing about Satan. The end of the verse, he knows where Satan dwells. In fact, Pergamon was called the city where Satan's throne is. Because idolatry is a satanic surrounded by the worship of idols and the Roman emperors, the worship of emperor worship. But the Pergamum church refused to renounce its faith. And even as this, this throne of Zeus overlooked the city, it was center of, uh, of emperor worship where Satan's throne is, where, where Satan dwells. The church stood against that and said, we're not bowing our knee to any other authority. 
A place, think about it, a place if you had gone to that place, to that city, with all the pagan worship, with all the, the, the stuff that goes on in that city, would you say, you know what, I want to plant a church right here. Let's set up camp right in the middle of this pagan emperor worship community and culture. I think most people would say, Let, let's move on. It's, it's too far gone. But not for Jesus. Not for those who love Jesus. And not for those who want to proclaim the gospel. They said, let's plant a church right here. Let, let, let's, let's plant a church right here. And look what it says. It says they were holding to the name of Jesus and not denying my faith, the faith, the gospel. What June says that we need to contend for the faith, the doctrinal truths of the gospel. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful witness who was killed. Despite the hardship that the Christians in Pergamum endured, they remained faithful to the Lord and to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, holding on means more than just confessing his name. Holding on means more than just confessing his name. Holding on to the name re- represents the character of a person. It's, it's living in harmony with the scriptures. It is walking with Jesus. It is remaining uh, 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 or maintaining allegiance to Christ. His lordship, his loyal to him and to worship him alone. And when the Roman authorities began to really enforce emperor worship throughout the empire, it began to get really serious for Christians. It gave Satan the opportunity to exploit them, to try to tempt them to bow down and worship a false god. But Jesus says, listen, I have this beautiful commendation for you. You you stood your ground. You continue to be loyal to the master. Family, no matter where we live, no matter where we gather, no matter where we work, this teaches us that no matter how corrupt the culture is, it is possible and it is expected to live in such a way that we continue to love, be loyal to, and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Antipas was put to death and they were faithful. We don't know much about him, but we do know this. The word witness means to proclaim or to declare, to be a witness for something or someone. But now that this, this word martus or, or martyr has taken on a much more, a much greater understanding. It means one who dies for the faith, as Antipas did. Holding on to the gospel, being loyal to Jesus, standing on God's word brings a price. Brings a price. It comes with a cost. It's happening all over the world. It's happening all over the world. People are being persecuted, killed, abused, children sold into slavery, brothers and sisters in prison, persecuted all over the world. In a book by Paul Marshall and Leela Gilbert called Their Blood Cries Out, they cite that in more than 60 countries, Christians are harassed, arrested, tortured, or executed specifically because of their faith. More than 600 million who take the name Christian live under, listen, this is their words, not mine, live under political restrictions or religious liberties. Perhaps 225 million of those suffer severe state interference in religion, obstruction, or harassment. They quote a man by the name of David Barrett. He wrote uh, um, uh, an international bulletin of missionary research. He said the average rate of martyrdom is something like 150,000 professing Christians a year. And I love what Jesus says here to to my, my, my faithful 
Antipas, my, 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 my faithful witness, my faithful. You belong to me. You belong to me. Personal pronoun, the people are his. Those who are being persecuted are his. The witnesses are his. My faithful witness. James Hamilton, in a, in a commentary called Preach the Word, writes this, to deny the faith, to deny the faith, in the face of death, would be to declare that one believes life in here and now is better than Jesus, better than having the life he promises, which cannot be defeated by death. By holding to Jesus' name and not denying the faith, even when Antipas was killed for the faith, the Christians in Pergamum declared that Jesus is better than life, end quote. My faithful witness. You know, Jesus used that same term, my faithful witness in chapter 1, speaking of himself in chapter 1, verse 5, because Christ was God, the Father's faithful witness unto death. And now God, the Lord Jesus Christ, honors Antipas for his faith and his allegiance unto death and calls him my faithful witness. He was witness unto death as well. Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Can we receive a commendation like that? Can we remain faithful unto death if necessary? Are we a church that would say yes? Jesus would say yes, you are faithful. Christ revealed the commendation recognized. Number three, the chastising rebuke. But I have a few things against you, verse 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The story of Balaam and Balak can be found in Numbers. Just real quickly, Balak was the king of Moab. The Israelites were coming close and they were, uh, they were ready to take the land. And Balak, the king of Moab, didn't like the idea and called on a prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites. Balaam, though, received clear instruction from God. Don't do it. You don't want to do that, uh, Balaam. Don't do that. Remember, Balaam was the, the one who was on his donkey and, and, and was stopped in the middle of the road, right, by, by the angels of the Lord. And he, ba- he beat his donkey a couple of times until, <laughs> until the donkey rebuked him. It's that guy. And rather than curse Israel like Balak wanted, Balaam blessed the people of Israel. But as mentioned in this text, we know that Balaam knew he could undermine Israel's worship, not by cursing them, but by sending the Moabite women into the camp and to entice the Israelites to participate in this pagan futility rites and, 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 and engage with sexual immorality with the Moabite women and to offer up food to idols and, and cause Israelites to sin by worshiping pagan gods. This was the stumbling block that Balak following Balaam's advice, put on the people of Israel to fall into sin. Look with me at verse 15. The Nicolaitans, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's there's a strong argument that the Nicolaitans were teaching the same thing that these followers, these teachers of, of Balaam were teaching. In fact, both words, the Hebrew uh, word for Balaam, conqueror of the people, Nicolaitans, conqueror of the people. So there's, there was something going on with these two groups. 
two church fathers in the second century said this about the Nicolaitans. They live lives of unrestrained indulgence, abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence, end quote. So you see what's going on here. The church of Pergamum had people in their congregation, in, in the household of God, living like pagans. And, and the church, the church leaders, the church folks were, 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 were teaching it and others were compromising and corrupting God's gathering. They weren't separated. They were compromising. And there's a good time to compromise. Anybody who's been married says, yeah, I know. Time to compromise. But not when compromise leads us or you or I into sin. Into sin. Into what is called worldliness. I use that term carefully. Worldliness is not, as some legalists would say, anything you do that non-Christians do. That's not what I mean. Some people look at just culture and say, we can't do that or we can't do this. That's not what I'm saying. Remember, Jesus himself, this church, have, has been, uh, was, came into being in a particular culture at a particular time. Compromise into worldliness, compromise into what the world does, is to enter into the practices, the systems, the beliefs of the world, that this is all there is. There is no God. They don't honor the Lord. They don't submit to Scripture. They don't worship the one true God. There is no God, and they live their life as if there is no God. And that kind of life, that kind of worldliness, that kind of compromising coming into the church will attract and lay a, a fruitful foundation of temptation toward sexual immorality, sexual lusts, worship of false gods, Often, what is really at the root of idolatry is this mistaken conclusion that something else, some, something else, some other God, some other thing that we worship and we sacrifice to is going to provide for me the things I need to feel loved and accepted, to feel like I have value. In the same way, sexual immorality is longing for intimacy without Christ at the center. is a way of providing false intimacy, trying to fulfill it a longing that is God-centered, that is rightly felt only when Christ is at the center. Members in this church, Nicolaitans, teachers of, of Balaam, had compromised their faith. They, were, they, they, they chose to enjoy the sinful pleasures of their culture and yet live in community with one another. Their sin was in compromising their faith for the world. They thought the best policy was to live peacefully and coexist with the Romans and, and their culture and their worship and everything would be just fine. Here at King's Chapel, if you've been here for quite a long time, you've heard us say that we are a people who do not escape the culture, escape the world, form of separatism, right? I only have, I only have Christian friends. I only use Christian car mechanics, right? If you're not a Christian, I want nothing to do with you because non-Christians are bad. Take a look around. Right? Sinners of the heart. Separatism forgets that the heart is what needs to change. And only by the grace of God, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the regenerated work of the Holy Spirit can a heart be changed. We don't separate ourselves, but we don't also join along syncretism. Just go along with everyone is doing. We don't sell little baggies with a fish symbol on them, right? 
Y'all, if you don't know what I'm talking about, see me after. We don't escape the world. We don't emulate the world. We engage the world for the gospel, for the cause of the gospel. That was Jesus' prayer in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. It's not about escaping and separating, but that you keep them from the evil one. Protect them. They are not of the world. Just that I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So don't emulate either. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I send them into the world, engaging the world for the gospel of Christ. Jesus came loving, caring, healing, serving people. Jesus came to redeem, to forgive, to reconcile a sinful people to a holy God. And we, to engage, not compromise, we need to engage, not escape. We need to engage, not emulate. We engage by demonstrating the gospel, by living and loving and caring for people and declaring the truth of the gospel to repent from your sins, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be forgiven and reconciled to God. The gospel doesn't change. Methods change. The truth of the gospel never changes. Christ rebuked the church at Pergamum for tolerating and compromising the truth of the gospel. There can be no compromise between loyalty to Christ and the sinful desires of idol worship or sexual immorality. Christ revealed, commendation recognized. And look with me at the command. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The verb here, repent, is um, what in the Greek, the aorist active imperative. I say all that because it, it, with the word to repent, there's a command. It's imperative command. But there's this element of ongoing urgency. Do it now. Do it now. I'm commanding you to turn, to repent, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will. It's an immediate and continual response to turn. And the Lord is calling this church to repent with a sharp warning of judgment. Look what it says. With the sword of my mouth. Judgment on on what's true and what the scriptures say. Stop tolerating worldly compromise. Stop emulating the world. Funny, Pergamum means thoroughly married. That's what, that's what Pergamum means, thoroughly married. Here's a church who was thoroughly married to the world. And notice that Satan did not cause trouble for the church from without. He came from within to compromise and, and to cause those who call their church home to compromise the things of this world. He's saying, repent, repent, repent. Confess your sin to God. Ask him for a a broken heart for your sin and change your conducts. Or look what he says, I'm coming. (laughs) I mean, just think about that for a minute. He says, I will come soon and wage war. Who's he talking to? The church. If repentance does not happen, Christ will come very soon and fight his church. That's a sobering thought. How incredibly sad these group of imposters have they not dealt with. And I think, you know what, I think, I think directly Jesus is talking about those who were false or at least compromised that he will come and judge. But I think something needs to be said also to the church at large. Are they practicing church discipline? Are they dealing with that? I, I, I think everyone is kind of going to get caught up in this unless they change their ways, unless they deal with the compromise as a body, as a people. 
process of discipline or, or is done. We don't want Jesus to war against the church. Repentance. Turn. Brothers, sisters, turn. Don't be caught up in compromise to a great degree where there is sexual immorality and idolatry. Chuck Swindoll says this. Christ's call for repentance included a warning for those who refused. If the faithful remnant refused to change their lackadaisical policies, and if the wicked minority continue their libertine practices, Christ would discipline them. He would come swiftly, waging war against them with a double-edged sword, his just discipline as the righteous judge, end quote. It's a call for the church to repent. It's a call for the individuals to repent. Why? Because we love them. We want to keep them and us from judgment. The issue is either repent of our wilderness, acknowledge its presence and evil, and, and commit to, to moving forward in the direction, Christward direction, or we face divine discipline. That's what it's about. And the loss of our light, we saw that two weeks ago. The light stand will be removed. Now, when I talk about judgment, I'm going to be really, really clear. We're not talking about our sins being judged on the cross. We're talking about a church that has gathered together, has compromised, and now they are living a life of sexual sin and idolatry. And Jesus is going to come and judge that church in a sense of divine discipline, as he should. As any father would do for his children, out of love. Okay, we got that? Just want to be really clear. So, our last point here is the church's reward. You have Christ revealed, accommodation recognized, chastising rebuke, the command to repent, and the church's reward. Look at me, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches, plural. Send this out to the seven churches, and all churches need to hear that, even today. To the one who conquers. So up to now, we've seen the same pattern, the same writing, and the Holy Spirit is saying, listen up, listen up. As he works in hearts of God's people, the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts through the living and written word of God, through Christ himself and the scripture. Listen up. And the one who conquers, the one who's victorious, the one who is an overcomer, present participle, the the conquering one who continues to be faithful. Look what Jesus says. I will give some of the hidden manna. For 40 years, manna was Israel's food in the wilderness till the people crossed the Jordan and entered Canaan. God instructed Moses when the tabernacle was built, to take a jar of manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant, close the lid where it is hidden. It's interesting to note in this passage too, according to non-authoritative but historical record, 2 Maccabee, the destruction of Solomon's temple uh, uh, says that Jeremiah hid the tabernacle with the Ark and the manna and the altar of incense in a cave and he sealed it. And Jewish tradition holds that this golden pot of manna still exists somewhere, hidden by Jeremiah at the destruction of Jerusalem, and this manna will be restored at the Messianic age. As the Jewish people look toward the Messianic age, they would enjoy this hidden manna that will be revealed. But followers of Christ, the followers of Christ recognize Jesus is the Messiah. He has ushered into into already the messianic age. Ever since the coming of Jesus, the followers of Jesus have tasted the hidden manna. They enjoy the intimacy with him. Jesus himself is called what? The bread of life. 
He contrasts between the manna in John 6 that was brought from heaven and to the manna which is himself as the bread of life. And it's hidden. Of course it's hidden. It's hidden to those who don't know Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, it's hidden from you. But those who are followers of Christ, we understand the bread of life that nourishes our souls, satisfies our deepest hunger. And those who refuse to eat at the feast of Pergamum, the, the temple worship, the, the, the food offered to, sacri- offered to uh, sacrifice and offered to idols, they will eat of the hidden manna of eternal life. Reject the banquets. Reject the pagan author, uh, uh, world. Reject those who worship false idols. And I will give you eternal life in my heavenly banquet in the new kingdom. Jesus continues, says, I will give them a white stone. A white stone. There's a lot of different uh, understandings of this. Not going to get into them all. Let me just give you two. I think it's pertinent to the text. The white stone in ancient days, the white stone had been, had been used in a court of law. A white stone signified uh, acquittal by a jury. A black stone was their condemnation. Acquittal white, black condemnation. Second, white stones was used as tickets of admission into a public festival. These two interpretations teach us that it's by grace alone that is by faith alone, that is in Christ alone, that we are forgiven and given by imputation the righteousness of Christ. We have not only been acquitted before the cosmic courtroom of judgment, but the perfect life of Christ, the life we could never live, that Christ has lived on our account, has been given to us, imputed to us, counted to us by faith. And now we, the children of God, by faith, have never-ending access into the very presence of God as his beloved children entrance into the messianic banquet. I will give them a white stone. I will give them the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name, last, written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Dr. G.K. Beale writes this. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, believers' reception of this name represents their final reward of consummate identification and unity with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ and his kingdom and under his sovereign authority. The new name is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible, end quote. Family, God is telling the church in Pergamum. God is telling the church at King's Chapel. God is telling the church all ages and all time throughout history to remain faithful to the end. To be my witnesses to the end, even if it costs our life. Keep repenting of your sins, of compromise, of sexual immorality, and idolatry, worship, of someone other than God. Enjoy the manna. You will enjoy the manna of eternal life, the banquet feast of the Lamb, as my children intimately known and fully acquitted. That's the message to Pergamum. That is the message to us. When the world dares uh, for us to compromise, we should remember the words of Christ. I will be your food. I will be your food now. I will be your food in eternity. I will be your entrance now. I will be your entrance into glory. I will give you my name forever. 
As the hymn written by Norman Clayton says, Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the bread of life. Invites us as we gather this morning. He invites us to take communion together. The bread of life. To remember his body that was broken. To drink of the cup, remembering his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Communion is not only a time of remembering the gospel. It is also a means of grace to grow in the gospel. To love the Lord Jesus, to be strengthened in our faith. To confirm our faith. To have real, genuine fellowship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Who dwells in us and among us as we gather. I hope you picked up a communion cup. little plastic on top pulls off of the wafer and the juice underneath it. Garbage is on the way out. You can throw it out when you leave. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, I'm going to invite Ricky up before we start, if that's okay. This is what we're going to do. We're going to remember the words of Jesus that on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. This is my body was given for you. In the same way he took the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to call the whole church to repentance, to confess our sins, to search your heart. I know I need to search your mind in ways I've compromised. Search our heart, confess our sins, repent, turn from them, and then celebrate communion. That Christ has forgiven all our sins, past, present, and future. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And as a church family, we can partake together. So Ricky's going to lead us in some music Spend some time in prayer, confession, repentance, and then during this song, you can partake of the cup, the bread and the cup, and then Ricky will close us out in one, one, one more song. Father, as we just gather together now and we eat of communion, we take of the bread, remember your, your, the body of Jesus, remember the, the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, we ask for forgiveness. Work in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that we may see, love, and treasure Jesus above all earthly treasures. And Lord, may we not compromise. May we stand firm in the faith, loving others and declaring the truth of the gospel. So help us, lead us, Lord, as, as Pastor Ricky leads us in music, Lord. We want to we know you better today and grow in more love and grace in Jesus. For name we pray.